Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is a special edition of the IFI podcast to preview this year's IFI Documentary Festival, which begins on Monday, September 21st. This year, for the first time, the festival will take place both in the IFI in Dublin's Temple Bar and online nationwide on IFI at Home, the IFI's new video on demand platform. In total, 21 features will screen as part of the festival with films from Ukraine, Lithuania, Norway, the United States, China, and of course, Ireland. This year's festival will also include the ever-popular Irish Shorts programme, which will introduce audiences to the next generation of Irish filmmakers. Later in the show, I'll chat with director and producer Gillian Marsh about two films she's showing this year's festival, The Funeral Director and Tomorrow is Saturday. But first, I'm joined by IFI Head of Cinema Programming David O'Mahony and IFI Head of Irish Film Programming Sinev O'Flynn to talk through some of the other films in this year's programme. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. David, I'm going to come to you first. This year's programme features a number of very timely features, not least the opening film Rebuilding Paradise. A number of states on the west coast of America are currently battling wildfires, and this film looks back to the particularly devastating campfire of 2018. Yes, exactly. There's, there's, there's certainly a feeling of history repeating itself in an all-too-grim fashion. Um, this film, as you say, is Ron Howard's documentary. Ron Howard is starting to make more and more documentaries. Um, the film with Pavarotti uh, last year, and now he's moved on to this. Uh, he's a personal connection with the city of paradise, and I think that's part of the reason why he's turned his eye towards this. It's an extraordinary film focusing essentially on the aftermath of this completely devastating fire that like it leveled completely flattened the town of paradise and in the process and displaced thousands more um it really focuses on the aftermath the resilience of the community the rebuilding efforts and it's a it's a humane story it's of course there's a larger macro political commentary being made here about global warming and the lack of and the almost insurmountable obstacles facing um, facing climate change activists. But this is really a grassroots tale of one community and their efforts to, to rebuild. It features some absolutely extraordinary footage. The first 10 minutes of the film is called from kind of personal eyewitness accounts, people filmed from their, their mobile phones. And some of, the, some of that footage is, is absolutely extraordinary. And uh, delighted to say that we will have a, a Q&A with Ron Howard and some prominent residents from the town of Paradise, uh, which will, which we will have uh, on the on the night Monday twenty first. And in kind of a reflection of COVID times, I know one of the people who's featured very heavily is Michelle John, who's the school superintendent. And just like the situation we're facing now, she's working very hard to get pupils back into education because their school has been destroyed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The the obstacles facing these residents um, after the fire, after this obliteration, the obstacles to reopen the town, to get schools reopened, to have houses built, and um, it also focuses quite a lot on the efforts for building. And people were displaced for months, and the bureaucracy and the red tape involved is is quite galling. Just in the face of this uh, overwhelming tragedy, there is further obstacles on the road to to rebuilding. And and as you said at the beginning, it's all seems to be happening again. The town of uh, of Paradise was was evacuated again. I believe last week uh, it doesn't seem to be in the crosshairs of this current fire but, uh, but many many other areas are um, and it's it's just extraordinary that we've we've come round to this again as this film opens it's incredible and um Aaron Brockovich pops up at some point as well he, he certainly does yes <laughs> cameo appearance by their real life Aaron Brockovich which is uh, worth the price of a ticket alone we're going to stay in the US for um, another film policing has obviously been a very hot topic this year and one of this year's films looks at what has been the focus of the Black Lives Matters protests, and that's Minneapolis. Yes, very true. This is um, uh, Women in Blue. This film was made before the the, the horrific uh, murder of of George Floyd, um, and it is a it, it's a portrait of incoming uh, chief of police. So she's the first female chief of police, and she's trying to enact change. She's trying to bring women and people of color to positions of authority within the department. But no sooner is she in the door that she has to fall on her sword and resign because there's an officer related shooting. Um, and it's really the fallout of that. The The film is being is being perceived as a work in progress. Uh, naturally, the filmmakers have have wanted to to reopen the edit and to add the the ongoing story with George Floyd and, the, and their aftermath of that and the repercussions of that. So what we have here is very much a, kind of a hot off the press uh, work in progress for that film. That's uh, that's Women in Blue. Mm-hmm. So a very vital and very current piece of work. 
And it's kind of very striking. I know one of the female police officers who's featured in the film, her own daughter is embarrassed to tell her friends that her mother is a police officer. That, that kind of, the stigmatisation is so deeply rooted. Yeah, that is extraordinary. Yes, that, that sequence is, is, is extraordinary. Yeah, just the obstacles and the barriers and um, the, you know, the prejudices that these women have to work with or work through while they're trying to do, a, you know, an unbelievably difficult job on the streets anyway is particularly galling, as you say. Sneva, we're going to stay in America, uh, but a film by an Irish director, Pat Collins. His follow-up to Song of Granite is a portrait of the acclaimed and renowned American folklorist Henry Glassie. Tell us about this one. Well, uh, Stephen, we're in America, but we're also in Brazil and in Turkey and in Ireland uh, with Henry Glassie. Henry Glassie fieldwork is an extraordinary piece of work by Pat. It's There are layers upon layers of artistry from the artists that are celebrated um, in their work to the work of Glassie himself, who's observing as an ethnographer and folklorist, um, and then Pat Collins, who is uh, a very quiet, meticulous observer uh, of artists at work. So it's a film that has many pleasures. As I say, the, the, the work of the folk artists that is documented, it's followed in a very languorous, slow-paced way. And there are moments when the patience of the viewer is almost tested. And there are sequences uh, where there are artworks, uh, ceramic pieces, weaving and so on. The, the, the process is being carried out and it's being carried out in real time. And, you know, you, you, you watch this and you gradually become immersed in the process and, and you really begin to appreciate uh, the, the passion of the artists. Um, but you also gradually begin to understand Henry Glassie. You begin to understand his agenda and his admiration for the people he documents and his um, modus operandi, where he, he quietly observes, he em- embeds himself in communities and begins to understand um, their agendas, really. It sounds like a perfect combination then, Pat Collins and Henry Glassie. I mean, anybody who'd be familiar with Pat Collins' work, particularly Song of Granite, he does have a very deliberate pacing to all of his work. He does. And, you know, there, there's all of Pat's films. There, there, there's all sorts of agendas going on. Um, but you feel you're in the presence of a master. You know, he, he <laughs> never takes a wrong turn. Are you, you're interested in following him, whichever turn he, he chooses to take. And I think his sensibility, I think it is very... Um, well matched with Henry Glassie's and with the artists and um, there's a quietness to the work and there's there's a respect there's there's an honoring of uh, the craftspeople that are being documented so so we learn quite a bit about the communities in Brazil and Turkey North Carolina and then we find ourselves in Ireland in Ballymanone uh, a small Ulster village where Henry Glassie spent I think about 10 years in the 1970s uh, he wrote I think five books um, exploring people and particularly their storytelling traditions. And uh, these are recorded in the books he, he wrote. And so we, we revisit um, this small town in Ulster. And so there is that kind of familiarity for Irish audiences with Pat Collins and with, with the community that's represented here. And Pat Collins will be joining us for a live Q&A that takes place on Saturday 26th. The screening is at 10 past six in the evening. Sineva, another Irish director working in international context this year is Trish McAdam, who has collaborated with two Chinese filmmakers, Wen Hai and Yinyan Zhang, on Egg Crying Whisper, which looks at the rights or lack thereof of female workers in Hong Kong and China. Um, Tell us a little bit about this. It's a very intriguing project. It is. um, The the, the form of the film is absolutely intriguing. Trish talks about it as a collaboration between these three directors, as a conversation. They're They're not always in agreement. So we have the, the male director, Wen Hai, who uh, films women workers over an eight-year period and their um, gradual radicalization, their, their learning about modes of activism and their challenging the, 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 the labor relations that they find themselves in. And we have these sequences, these interviews with these women workers intercut or, or interwoven with the personal diary of Jinyang, Zhen Jingyan, who is a, an intellectual, uh, an activist, and who is uh, incarcerated under house arrest for a long period. And she documents this experience partly as a, as a, a, a therapy for herself. You know, this allows her to express, to articulate um, her political and personal 
um, position in relation to the incarceration. And bridging a lot of these sequences then are these animations that Trish McAdam um, has created. Um, and they would echo a tone of political subversion and they, they, they act as, as a, a, a breathing space between these quite intense um, sequences of women talking, women being activists. I found it a fascinating project, as I say, formally, uh, these three quite varied kinds of um, expression is very, uh, allows for great energy uh, between the sequences. But, you know, you learn a lot about um, China, about women's experience in China, about Hong Kong. And it's very interesting to see Trish, who we, of course, um, celebrated in a program of her work within the last couple of years to see how she is finding new ways of working and um, through animation, through collaboration, uh, which is not by any means unique, but it's, it's unusual for directors to, I suppose, to subvert their own agendas and, to, and to, to find ways of uh, creating discourse between other filmmakers. I was going to ask you, actually, based on the retrospective that we did of, of Trish McAdams' work last year, is there an easily recognisable through line with her work in this film or is it, is it a kind of a departure for her? Um, well, in recent years, Trish has begun to work in animation. Um, she, a number of short films that we screened um, as part of an interview with her um, did focus on Chinese human rights issues. So uh, it, the, the, you do see this continuation or this evolution of her interest in this area. David, we spoke there um, a couple of moments ago about Henry Glassie and another great of American academic life was Oliver Sacks. Uh, the neurologist who passed away in 2015. He was obviously the author of Awakenings and was portrayed by Robin Williams in, in the film of the same name. But he sat down with director Nick Burns uh, shortly before he passed away to talk about his life and work. So I, I expect this is kind of a very moving uh, film, a very moving piece of work. Absolutely, it is indeed. Uh, as you say, he sat down very shortly after he was given a terminal diagnosis and um, his biography was, I believe, just about to be published. And he gave uh, over, over, I think, a week. It was a series of very, very lengthy biographical interviews going from childhood right up to, to his current condition where he's, he's facing, facing the end and facing it with huge bravery, as, as he has done all, all, all of uh, his life. And yeah, it's an extraordinary film. Um, he's an extraordinary man. And he covered so many different and varied facets and <laughs> endeavors from bodybuilding and weightlifting in California to neurosurgeon and, you know, book writing on all manners of psychology, uh, a really, really extraordinary individual. And the documentary pays homage and tribute to him, to him, the man and, and his endeavors, his creative endeavors with his writing and also his, his extraordinary work with, as a doctor. And you mentioned uh, Awakenings, and certainly that will be probably the, the way in for a, a lot of people, but they'll know Oliver Sacks through that film, through Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. But yeah, that's really only one, one small aspect. There's, there's, he's really, really a, a multifaceted and intriguing character. It's a very moving film, as it's, it, it can only be. I mean, this, the film ends with Oliver Sacks facing his, um, his own his own end and um, as I say facing that with with great dignity. I suppose a part one aspect of Oliver Sacks's life that people might not be overly aware with was that he was gay but that was a part of his life that he hid away for a very long time. For a, a, a long time yeah he had um, an experience I guess coloured his, his his identity his perception of, 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 his, of his sexuality and he very much buried it and by his own admission was celibate for some 30 odd years although the when, when the, the filmmakers catch up with them to record these interviews, he has a partner and he seems to be in, um, in a very loving relationship um, so that he does he ultimately come through that one barrier. Two other pioneers, Suniva, we're going to talk about now in their own way were artist Helen Hooker and her husband, historian Ernie O'Malley, who are the subject of Chris Keppel's A Call to Arts. They were real trailblazers back in the Irish art scene of the 40s and 50s. Ernie O'Malley and Helen Hooker. Uh, yeah, they were an extraordinary couple. Ernie O'Malley, of course, we knew of um, through our history lessons in school. Uh, he was a highly regarded uh, Irish revolutionary who was involved in the War of Independence and later Civil War. Um, but Helen Hooker, the woman who we married in the 1930s, is someone who, well, certainly I didn't know much about. Uh, she was a photographer and a sculptor. And together they really were involved in a, a very dynamic uh, bohemian kind of art scene in Dublin in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, about which 
we may know little. I think it's always fascinating when uh, Irish history is where, where texture is added to our sense of Irish history, where we get a greater understanding of Irish social and intellectual life and cultural life. It's a history, I suppose, that we're more familiar with through kind of military um, moments and, and political periods. Ernie O'Malley and Helen Hooker were parents of three children, one of whom was Cormac O'Malley. So Cormac um, has, for much of his life, been involved in celebrating their legacy. It's an interesting piece of work because we have the, the history. We have Ernie's written word and his written diaries. Much of Ernie's work was about was memoir about his um, experience as a revolutionary. So we have his uh, documents, but in her work, we have this very rich visual heritage. Uh, her photographs of Ireland and the West of Ireland in the 40s and 50s are very beautiful. And I guess photography in that period was not fully celebrated as an art form. I think she was modest in terms of her photographic work. So the retrieving of that work and the representation of it to today's audiences is there's an element of surprise to it. And I mean, for me, I think there's a terrific um, sense of, of gratitude that she did go out and document Irish life from the perspective of an outsider in some respects. She was a wealthy American woman uh, who marries uh, this Irish revolutionary. And so her perspective on Irish life is, is somewhat different to an Irish native. And of course, then her sculptural work, um, she was probably best known for her busts of figures in the public domain, but also uh, her friends and family. This work is foregrounded in the documentary as well. In relation to the perspective, then, Sneva, in the documentary, is it very much brought through a family lens from Cormac's point of view, or is it kind of a much more objective look at the couple and their work? Um, there is certainly an element of, of family. The, 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 the couple divorced uh, in the 1950s, um, and it was a, a pretty painful break for the family. Um, Helen took the older two children away with her to the United States and Cormac, the youngest son, was left in Ireland with his father, Ernie O'Malley. So what might have been an irreparable breach appears not to have been, and Cormac does speak about that period of the family's life and how they survived that, but there's no bitterness in it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they move on and, you know, certainly his sense of both his parents is of... Uh, somebody who is enormously respectful of their legacy. So, yes, as a, as a, as a person who's interested in archiving and interested in history, you, you know, that perspective is, you know, it's both personal, but he, you know, he has an historian's eye, so it's, it's um, meticulous as well. David, this notion of art and history intersecting is also um, one of the the, th the big themes of this year's international lineup and uh, a film called The Euphoria of Being in particular, where dance is central to this incredible story. Uh, very much so, yes. Uh, this is an, it's an extraordinary film, uh, focusing on uh, a woman, Eva Fahadi, who, when she was 20, uh, when, she was, when she returned to Hungary from Auschwitz, um, having experienced atrocities there at the camps, and 49 members of her family uh, were, were killed. So the film catches up with her when she's 90 and she's asked to participate in, in a dance piece, um, in an interpretive dance piece, uh, whereby they'll try to convey her, her experiences in the camps through the medium of dance. And so she's paired up with a much younger dancer, an internationally renowned dancer. And um, it's, it's uh, these three women, the director of the film and, the, and these two women who are separated by um, an enormous age, try to create an organic dance interpretive piece that will that will somehow speak to Eva Fahadi's life and experience um, and experience of losing so many family members back in Auschwitz. Um, it's a really beautiful film. It's very immersive. Uh, it's it's quite cinematic, um, and you know, it's it allows the dance pieces really to speak for themselves. Um, it's very rewarding and uh, very emotional, and very moving. We're staying in the the same neck of the woods, um, Eastern Europe, for the Earth is blue as an orange. Um, whereas the euphoric being looks at dance, this very much has film um, at its centre and it's a lifeline to a Ukrainian family uh, who are in the midst of a war. Yeah, it is interesting just actually to mention as a sidebar how when you're putting programmes together, you don't necessarily put titles together because they chime and speak to each other, but 
once you have them all together, you start to see these uh, these connections that are almost coincidental, but it is quite striking when you speak about them. Like there's there's a lot of connective tissue between these films, which is very, very interesting. But yes, as you say, the earth is as blue as an orange. Um, it's set in Ukraine and it's, it's, a, it's a very poetic, contemplative portrait of a family who uh, are taking up the camera to make films. They're going to film their own life and to, to make creative pieces as a family while the war is raging outside. So it's a look at how art can, can heal uh, and also how younger people can express themselves and express their anxieties and fear about what's going on societally around them through the medium of, of film. And uh, through that, there are greater questions asked obliquely about the, the power of art and the power of art to communicate. Sneva, we mentioned earlier on about Irish directors working in an international context. So we need to mention Dublin-based director Nino Tropiano, who has profiled a young woman from Zanzibar who's looking to find her own way through the expectations of her local community. And that's Samira's dream. Nino, um, some of you may remember as the maker of a film called Chippers some years ago, which was a terrifically interesting study of Italian communities who came here and opened a network of chippers in Dublin. So it was great to have that history uh, made by an Italian who came to Dublin. So um, he secured funding um, from the Simon Cumber Fund to make a documentary about uh, women in Africa and women in education in Africa and so he found himself in Zanzibar where he met a group of young women who were embarking on um, the stage of third level education um, with ambition to become professionals, uh, teachers and so on. And one of the young women he encountered was a woman called Samira uh, who wanted to become a primary school teacher. So Nino followed her over a period of seven or eight years as her various dreams and aspirations came to fruition. Some did, some didn't. She is a woman living in a community where there would be expectations of marriage and uh, family and parenthood. And she manages to incorporate all of these um, expectations into her life. So Nino's portrait of this young woman um, is microcosmic of women all over the, the globe who would uh, be working to empower themselves, to become more independent, to redefine themselves and to, to strike their own identities. Uh, it's a very uplifting film. Uh, Samira is a fascinating young woman. Um, there is a, a sense that Nino has found himself um, in, embedded in this community over a longish period. Um, he, he comes in and out. He doesn't, he doesn't live there for, for seven or eight years, but he gets to know the community and to respect um, their, their, their various ways. It certainly sounds fascinating and Samira's Dream is available to view on iFi at Home from Wednesday 23rd. Two final features, David, um, I want to talk about. And it's interesting how you mentioned uh, earlier on about how when you're programming a festival, you get some through lines. And it's interesting that we have two films that are set in Istanbul, Stray and Love Child, both of which tackle separate issues raised by the conflict in Syria. Yes, indeed. And uh, and they couldn't be more different. I mean, um, OK, we'll start with Stray. This is a film which, as you as you mentioned, is set in Istanbul and it focuses on that extraordinary city uh, through the eyes of a couple of dogs, a couple of stray dogs. And we track and follow these dogs in and around the, the streets of Istanbul, their, their interactions with people. It's an incredibly cinematic film in, in how Elizabeth Lowe, the director, has managed to have a dog's eye view, if you will, a dog's perspective as these dogs weave and wend their way through the city. Um, so in many respects, this this may be redolent to listeners of the film Keddy, which was out a couple of years ago, which focused on the cats of Istanbul. Istanbul is synonymous with cats, but it's a it's totally a very, very different film. It's a film which is much more about, as you mentioned, the, the Syrian immigrant experience and how that is communicated as these couple of stray dogs come under the, the care of a group of kids from Syria who find themselves living on the streets of Istanbul. And I suppose it's it's a double title, really. Which which of these groups is the stray, or they're both strays? So it could relate to these um, these unfortunate kids who find themselves um, living on the streets of Istanbul, and these dogs that they they bring under their care. It's observational. There's no voiceover. It's not making any kind of bold political points or statements. Um, it's very poetic. It's very moving, and um, I think it's a, it's it's a very rewarding experience. For anybody who's ever moved abroad, getting trapped with bureaucracy can often be a nightmare. And that's the focus of Love Child. 
Yes, exactly. Another film set in Istanbul, but uh, this is, it's about the experience of uh, a couple, both of whom are married, have, have, have partners, but they're, they've been in an extramarital affair for, for many, many, many years and have a child as the result of, of that um, experience. Um, I should say they're from Tehran and they flee Tehran as their penalties for it, uh, indulging in um, uh, adultery. Uh, can be it can be severe, it can be death, and also divorce is illegal. So they make the the drastic decision to flee um, with their child. And the film always plays like a courtroom drama over the period of of many many years as they find themselves in Istanbul, trying to seek um, permanent residency and trying legitimacy and trying to make a future for themselves. So it um, it has quite a long span of years. Um, it's filled with great suspense. We come to know these two people extraordinarily well and to really deeply feel their experience. There's a very nice um, device whereby we have access to therapy sessions where they, they open up about their previous experience. And that's that's very well achieved. It saves any kind of textual backstory. We, we get a, a, quite a nice three-dimensional view of these two people and their child and their, their experience back in Tehran and what they're, what they're running from and what they're trying to uh, run towards, if you will. Yeah, it's just an extraordinary film. I feel by the end of it, it it's almost with nail-biting suspense. You're awaiting each uh, ruling from the court. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's an extraordinarily powerful film. Two beautiful films, Stray screens on Wednesday 23rd and Love Child screens on Thursday 24th. Uh, Sneva, we'll finish with two events in the programme. And um, we always have a very popular Irish shorts programme uh, as part of the festival. And this year is no different. Yeah, this, this year's shorts programme, um, which has been selected and curated by our colleague Dean Kavanagh, uh, it's very varied. Um, there have been some years where um, the, the documentary portrait uh, has, has loomed large, but this year we have a combination of portraits and story films and uh, political films. If I were to draw attention to a couple, particularly striking one is one directed by Gar O'Rourke, a film called Kachalka about a uh, gym, an open-air gym in Kiev. And it's um, a really muscular film. It's, it's great. It's uh, just a, a series of observations of people working out in a park in Kiev. Um, it's produced by Ken Wardrop, and it's a, a really memorable piece of work. Uh, Dear Little Sophia is one directed by Paddy Hayes, and it's about a very brave young woman, Sophia Murphy, who speaks about her abuse as a child. Killing the Messengers is one by Bryony Dunn about birds and um, their historical and cultural associations with uh, as carriers of omens. Um, and then there are films about women in sport. Uh, there's a, a story film, a short documentary that uh, revisits the Mountjoy uh, helicopter escape in 1973 that's... Um, that, that's fascinating. It has great uh, breakout energy to it. So it's it's a great program. And, and Dave, you were speaking earlier about um, the overall program having connections. Well, you know, I, I would always find with Dean's work that there's a great rhythm to it. And certainly the order of the shorts and the way they're selected is very rewarding. And we're presenting this program as, you know, a beginning to end kind of experience rather than selecting the shorts one by one as you wish. So y you watch them. Um, over an hour or two and you get the full blast of uh, the different moods of the programme. It's a great piece. The Irish Shorts programme will be available from Saturday 26th and is presented in association with Screen Scene. Uh, a final word then, Sneva, from yourself about a special online panel event being presented in association with the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. Uh, this is Something Old, Something New, um, which is a, a look at the use of archival extracts in new work. Yeah, well, this is something that um, I think we're all a bit fascinated by, um, how archival works are incorporated into new documentary, whether they're used to introduce atmosphere, um, whether they're used for evidential purposes, or whether they're used for inspiration. So this panel is something old, something new, um, is one that will be hosted by Dr. Kira Chambers from UCC. And she, in fact, has been working with the Kingston University um, they are actually embarking on a programme where they will be encouraging young filmmakers to work with archive. So our colleague Cassandra O'Connell um, from the Irish Film Archive will also sit in the panel, as will Pat Collins himself. 
and you can register for free for that panel at ifi.ie. So as you can hear, there's a really fascinating world of filmmaking to be discovered at the IFI Documentary Festival. We've spoken about a small selection of the 21 films available. The full programme can be viewed at ifihome.ie and ifi.ie. David, Sneva, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much, Stephen. Gillian Marsh is this year's IFI Documentary Festival MVP, with two films screening as part of the event, The Funeral Director and Tomorrow is Saturday. The films are portraits of two very different Irishmen, Sligo Undertaker David McGowan and Newry-born artist Sean Hillen, who are nevertheless both known in their respective fields for their artistry, insight and passion. The films will screen as part of the festival on Saturday 26th and Sunday 27th, and I'm delighted that Gillian Marsh joins me now. Gillian, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Gillian, so I guess my first question is, where do you find the time to produce two films to have them ready for uh, this year's documentary festival? Well, I tell you, there have been ongoing projects for a long time. Um, the funeral director, as you can imagine, it, um, it went on for a good few years because you didn't really know when you were going to get somebody to participate. I had RT on to the, used to call me up every year going, okay, will you have the funeral director ready for October? And I'm going, no. And I said, listen, people aren't queuing up to get onto my program. You have to be dead, you know? So <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the quickest way you got to um, keeping them quiet because there was no answer to that. You know? Started, it was a program I tried to get made back in 2002 about, and, and they said they'd done death. I think they'd had a few programs on death. So it took me a good few years. It feels like it's a, it's a child graduating eventually. Um, how has lockdown, has lockdown had a huge impact on your work? Has everything kind of ground to a halt or, or have you been able to keep progressing projects while we've been all kind of stuck at home? I was lucky in ways in that I had those two projects to finish. Um, and well, I had finished the funeral director beforehand, but um, I wanted to make a longer version, uh, but we had to stick it stick to 52 minutes for broadcast. So the first thing I did in lockdown was we, I said to Greta, the editor, let's, um, let's put all the, the, stuff you know let's put everything we wanted to put in back in and make a feature length documentary so it's um the feature length is 82 minutes so but we thought it would kind of be a quick job but of course once you move one shot and another shot everything kind of extends so it was sort of like a four or five week edit which i hadn't really banked on just trying to get all the different pieces into it and then went straight into um, tomorrow is Saturday just to finish that off because we wanted to get that finished and both edits were I mean both projects were done over um, well the funeral director over about three or four years uh, because Dougie was sick for quite a long while and we had to wait for the end of that story and um, then the tomorrow is Saturday I chose to do it like edited to a certain point and then um, come back to it to give ta- uh, Sean some time so that his life can kind of move into into a new stage so I was lucky in ways that we had those two to work on during the lockdown mm-hmm. but at the moment now it's pretty quiet I have to say. You mentioned there that the process of the funeral director was took place over a number of years I'm just interested where did you first hear about David McGowan and when did you first think that there was a kind of a documentary in his story? Well, I first went to meet David McGowan in 2002 and I went in and filmed with him myself and researched. And that was when um, I went to um, RT at the time, but they they weren't interested in a programme on death. And I actually went to Channel 4 and they were very interested, but they wanted a different type of programme. It was around the time autopsy and all those programmes were out and they wanted that kind of like, you know, gory sort of programme, which I knew it was never going to be. You know, they wanted to kind of be embalmer, ding, ding, you know, and it's not that type of program. So I never proceeded with anything with them at the time. And then my dad died and uh, all the research I'd done with David, suddenly I was firsthand, you know, I kind of didn't really know what to do. He died in the middle of the night and I knew you had to get them to the undertaker within a certain amount of time. So I was with my mum and my dad and I could see you know, that it was, the process was kind of beginning to start with my limited knowledge. So I rang David at, I think it was, he died at three and I rang David at like 6.30 or seven thinking it was a nice, reasonable hour. And he was like, why didn't you ring me in the middle of the night? And I'm going, well, there was nothing you could do. I mean, he's dead. 
And they said, yeah, but we're, you know, we're funeral directors. We'll go out to you in the middle of the night. And I had Googled what to do with a dead man in your house, wondering if I needed the police or whatever I needed. And it just showed me how to do my tax returns. <laughs> uh, so I was like, uh, so David, David, then I, I watched him. He looked after my dad fantastically and, and my mom and just, I just went, I've got to make this program. And then I had missed a commissioning round where they had done a few kind of, not not the same types of programs, but a few on death. So eventually Ray McCarthy uh, in RTE allowed me to put it in with the MBAI and we got it, I think, in 2016. Uh, but it was a hard one to do because for David, I mean, he had to trust me. And it's not an easy thing to do, like chase him to say, well, you can, you know, can we go in and ask these people if we could follow their funeral? And we got, you know, there was a few times like David said, okay, we're able to go with this funeral, but then some second cousin might arrive and say, you know, Paddy was a quiet man. He won't want the cameras. And then you'd lose that funeral again. Mm. So I went for a long time kind of hoping to get 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 access to funerals and that wasn't that wasn't as easy i think my children thought i was like a, a, a funeral you know a stalker i'd be going driving past the funeral home and, oh my god somebody's dead and i'm not in there so as you're saying i mean there's, there's obviously huge sensitivities around that that whole issue and you know it's a, it's a very private time for people so did david kind of act as your intermediary as a lot on a lot of the occasions or would you have approached the families directly well, I, sometimes I was filming that, um, you know, I would film in the public side. So I'd be out filming the, the church and the hearse going to the church and I'd have been uh, around the funeral home. But um, it was a sort of, you couldn't, I couldn't go over David's head and approach it. So David was approaching them initially. And I mean, he, he knew that's where Dougie got involved. Like David asked Dougie when he was visiting the very first time. So then we were with him the second time when he went to visit him. And, and sorry, Dougie is, uh, he's a terminally ill uh, gentleman in the film who's a former pilot. Yeah, he's the pilot who's terminally ill. And, um, and he agreed to, to participate. Then I had to kind of talk to the family and things because they were like, they were Irish and he was American. So for him to say a camera can follow you as an American was a different way than the Irish would view it, you know? Mm-hmm. So luckily I knew his, his wife or his partner and, uh, and his kids. And so after, you know, we kind of worked together on it and that, because it is, it is a very hard time for any family, you know, and, and the whole, you could see like how David deals with families and how vulnerable people are at this time. Like you can see how Irish people are renowned, known to deal with death, you know, the best in the world because of the wake and because of all the people around and the support that's, that's shown, you know, mm. it's unique really. There are, there, there are two sides, I think to the, to the film, obviously you have David's story on the one side and what he does, but then also, it's very much around the rituals and the processes around dying and burial and kind of people's reaction to that. How did you go about striking the balance between those two? Do you have a very clear idea or did it kind of become apparent as you went along how that would, would, would sort itself out, if you like? From the start, I always wanted to make a programme because I felt, you know, that answered people's questions. Like so many people said, you know, oh, when you get the ashes through the clothes and the nails and all the bits and pieces are in there, you know, from the coffin. And others would say, oh, sure, you know, there's three coffins go in to be cremated at a time. And there, I suppose there's sort of questions a lot of people don't like asking in person because you kind of feel like you're, and I was ignorant to an awful lot of this, I hadn't really realized like I kind of had embalming the mind which was a mix-up between an autopsy and embalming like you know you had that idea oh my gosh they probably take all the body parts out but it is just like a drip and embalming is just one tiny incision and it's like a drip that you put on in hospital and just you know changing the blood for the the solution and uh, and then I hadn't realized there was only the bones that were actually you know, ground down, so the ashes are the bones of, of the deceased. So I thought there's so many questions that I, I said to Greta in the beginning, we've got to make sure that when people watch this program, they realise it's not as scary or, 
you know, that there is a lot of respect and, and you know, shown within the, within the process and things like that. So I just wanted people, because I think people were scared and, and from the feedback we got, like so many people wrote to David and I got some emails myself to say, thank you for taking the fear out of death. So it was, I really just want, we made a thing that we were going to have a good, nearly an educational point of view from the program so that people could actually know what was ahead of everybody. Because we're all going to have to organize a funeral somewhere along the line. And, um, and also kind of see, you know, the way it should be done so that it's not, it's not seen in any scary or, or bad way, you know. Mm. I think that what was especially striking is that there are a couple of scenes um, in the film where, you know, you do see David working um, in his embalming studio, if you like. And I suppose what's what's especially moving is how much care and attention, how much dignity he gives to the people there as if as if they are still there, like that. that It's not a very methodical. It's not a very cold process. It's it's done with a huge amount of heart and huge amount of respect. I, and that was something I really, really, and I was saying to Greta, really wanted to get across is the gentleness and the respect and the way all his staff, they, they work with the deceased and each and every one of them, we couldn't include everybody's interviews, but they all said that you feel the presence. And I've been in, in the embalming room, like there is a presence. You can, you can, it isn't, it's not scary and sad. And I think, you know, I thought, oh my gosh, what you know, you're going to be in the uh, bombing, uh, watching and bombing and that. But it's the way they are with the deceased and the way they massage them. And you know, in their head, they'll like if I wasn't there, they'd probably talk aloud to the person. But you know, they're having a chat. Or David always says, like, he's thinking, gosh, this lady, you know, she's had some life and you know, she's these children. And he often says, he, you know, he thinks of her life. And the same with Martina and the rest of the embalmers within David's company. They all say you kind of talk to this person, you feel their presence and you can feel it around you. And I, I don't know how to put in words, but you could kind of feel uh, like I know David's very spiritual, but you could get what he meant. You know, you'd be in there uh, with a camera, but you could feel that this was it was OK. And and uh, and it was just nice to see the gentleness. Like nobody, if any, if nobody is left naked in his company, like there was no way any of them would ever be lying on, on the table with no clothes on. He says he has the same respect in death as in life. And he said this lady wouldn't like to be anywhere without being, you know, covered and keeping her dignity and that. And he'd, he'd probably, he said he'd fire somebody if they were, you know, showed that respect and left them. Naked, just in the middle, you know, that people walk through. Like, nobody walks through that area in his company. Now, I know that's not the same all over the country, but uh, it's lovely to see the respect and love that they have for them, really. Mm. It's incredible when you're watching it. I, I suppose something that I kind of knew but surprised me still was, you know, this is something that happens every day of the week. You know, people die and people get buried. How many people are actually involved in the process from start to finish? I mean, David obviously has his staff, but then you have, you know, the grave diggers who are involved. You have all, like it's 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 a huge kind of machine that kind of moves, but it, it, it happens every day, as I say. Yeah, numerous times. Like it's um, it, it's amazing. Just watching them organize everybody's funeral and having had it with my own dad, because I think until you lose somebody yourself, it's hard to understand what, what it's all about. But it's very therapeutic in some ways, you know. And, uh, and I, I've often, like, I loved the way in some of the smaller graveyards where you can dress the grave and where the mahal, um, you know, dig the grave and things. Because watching them all, they're all grieving, but it's, they're together, they have their laugh, they have the giggle and even um, Letty Ferguson's family within the programme where they dressed the grave. It was watching the whole family together. They were like, really helped them, you know, and they were putting the flowers down and they were getting it all lined. And uh, it meant so much to the, that family. And I could see why, I, like, I'm probably going to cause consternation when, God forbid, my mother passes or so, because I'd be in the graveyard in Kildare trying to dress it and they'd probably go, you're not allowed. But, but it was lovely to see the whole family together and, and even waiting by the coffin. They, you know, they said themselves they hadn't been together for years and, and they've spent so much time now with, with people. 
and you know chatting through chatting about the deceased person but it's like a big organization they're like event managers the the funeral directors really well, it's a it's a, it's a fascinating and and really insightful uh, documentary. The funeral director screens in the iFi and on iFi at home on Saturday, twenty sixth. And um, Gillian, the other film you have in the festival is the brilliant Tomorrow is Saturday, which you co-directed with Greta Ola um, about the artist Sean Hillen, uh, who specialises in photography and collage. Um, I suppose the first question I would ask, obviously, because yourself and Greta are co-directors on the project, tell us a little bit about that process and and, and as co-directors, how does that work? Well, firstly, when I met Sean and that and decided to make the program, because it was, a, where do you start with some, a story like Sean Hillen? And um, so we took kind of the avenue of, of going, you know, decluttering him and trying to, to sort out his house. And I know in the end of the day, we didn't get to declutter much, but we got, a, but even the process of taking everything out of his house, sorting it and getting it back in, was going to be like I decided that was kind of the the way we would tell the story and Greta came on board once I had started editing because Greta was going to edit it so we um I decided we want I wanted to kind of be editing close to the time I'm shooting just in the event that when you're going through so much stuff and you're trying to tell the story of this man's life which was going to unfold through these boxes you know because that was that was the way, you know, visually it decided that we would get get the story told. And we were looking for his archive and finding stuff that would tell tell his life story. But um so Greta was editing on the on alongside the shoot, which was great because, you know, parts that she she might have heard something, you know, that came out of a box and goes, That was a lovely line, a story there, make sure you find out where that, you know, story ends and things like that. Mm. So um we kind of, the, the program, it had to kind of evolve rather than be story, strictly storyboarded or anything because you didn't, it was observational in as much as we didn't know what he would have from, you know, Seamus Heaney tapes to his parts of his old collages. It was like a treasure trove no matter what box he opened. We had loads that never made it into the cut that we could have gone, you know, through lots of different uh, avenues. I could have made a series on him really. So, um, and Greta, uh, we edited a 46-minute cut, then that was in 2018, really. And then we parked it because I was, wanted to give Sean time and, and she was going on to another job. And, uh, and so I kind of worked away and then we came back into the edit in lockdown. And that was actually brilliant for both of us because you're looking at it with fresh eyes. And... Um, and Greta added so much with the, the sound design and all the edits. So we kind of, you know, we co-directed like she, brilliantly through the whole edit. And even though I was in Mayo, she was in Dublin. And every now and then I'd get up to Dublin and she'd send me cuts up and down. And, and, uh, and you know, she added like a lot of you know, spark and different ways to do it. It was always going to have to be chronological in that that was the way his life, you know, Mm-hmm. unfolded the way you know when he talks like there's it's hard he has so many gems that you have to give up some of them and you're he's just brilliant you know to interview as you mentioned one of the, the the key stories or one of the threads going through it is this idea that sean is decluttering his studio which is when you see it in the film it, it's quite the sight and i was just wondering you know it was obviously a challenge for him to work in that physical space what was it like for you as filmmakers trying to negotiate that that space oh listen <laughs> no matter what way you turned you were not something down <clears throat> or you stood on something like there was there was no way through sean hill's house without feeling like you were you know a hippopotamus going through a china shop it um he like the cameraman and everybody kind of all twiddled around it like tightly and um uh, kept when we were moving you had to keep half the crew out or in the house because there wasn't enough room for everybody there's like there was just moving it into a warehouse I couldn't actually believe he had so much in the house because it it filled a space bigger than his house when we laid it out in tables and everything it was just so much uh, there was so much stuff and then Donna from uh, then the NCAD came to look at his archive and and I mean they've 
got an awful lot of it now has gone back, gone to the, gone to the NCAD for, uh, or into Nival. And uh, she was delighted, but they were all trying to come in and out and see what was, you know, what was worth keeping, what wasn't. Uh, so it was, it was a challenge, I have to say. Yeah. Um, as part of this year's documentary festival, we have a, a special online event um, examining the use of archival works in new work. And I was just wondering, obviously, there's there's some really moving footage in the documentary with um, Sean Hillen's the, the family's old eight millimeter uh, prints. And I was wondering, were there any particular challenges in working with the, with that film or with that medium? He it all um, like where we had got it. It was had been transferred onto VHS and that, and he had some on digital because his father was quite good at, at transferring the footage, and. Um, so that's where we got it from. Uh, so we didn't we didn't have have too much. We we're just lucky that he had had the copies of that and his copies of college life and things in London uh, archive and things and even the Seamus Heaney uh, story and all that. We had we were lucky that the father did keep a lot of footage and Sean himself. What has um what has Sean's reaction been to the film itself? Because obviously, I mean, I think, I mean, he's a, he's a very engaging subject, but it's a very um there's a huge self awareness to him. I mean, he's very when when the the film starts, he's very aware of where he is in his place, kind of professionally and personally. And I wonder when he was looking back on it, was it some was it an experience he enjoyed, or did he find it a difficult watch? He was it was nerve wracking the day that we watched it, and. Um... He had many laughs and, and a few cries in it. And um, he hasn't watched it that many times. I think, well, he, he told me the other day he watched it this week. Uh, and he just said, that was the best hour and a half of therapy I've had in years <laughs> after he watched it. And he laughed and laughed. So he's, you know, because Sean, Sean is so open and that I suppose it's hard to watch yourself, you know, and watch a story about yourself. But he, he said it's... Um, He's a good sense of humour, so he, he he's enjoyed it anyway, which is good. Well, it certainly is a fascinating documentary. Tomorrow is Saturday Screens as part of the IFI Documentary Festival on Sunday 27th. Gillian, thanks so much for your time. That's all from the special episode of the IFI podcast. My thanks to David O'Mahony, Sineva O'Flynn and director Gillian Marsh. I hope you'll join us next time. Bye for now. The iFi podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The iFi is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support. <laughs>